I spent the last hour in my room just changing gears mentally and going over this message, and it was delightful. I had my windows open, and I kept hearing, And then sometimes you hear the Some of you really got into it, and some of you were rather dignified on there. I'd like to add my thank yous uh, to Sandy's, to Jill and her committee, and Sandy and the musicians, the camp staff. Until you have planned one of these and executed one of these, you don't really think about all the little details. And um, when you have, you're like, hmm, they do a good job, don't they? Let's give them a hand. And I have just loved the music, um, the musicians, the song selections, and you've been amazing. To sit up here on the front row and have 600 women singing behind you was really, really cool. And I felt like with each session that it actually prepared my own heart to give the Word of God. That's worship. You know, I mean, we were singing rich text, and you were lifting your voices, and it was a great blessing to me. A couple of you have asked me how you could contact me. I don't know if that's to complain about things I said or to ask questions, but um, the easiest email for me to tell you would be Taylor F for faith, Taylor F at faith.edu. That's easier than my very long personal email. So if you'd like to ask questions or gripe or whatever, feel free to email me. You are tired. Some of you didn't sleep much. You partied hard, or the person next to you snored, or whatever. And I know that you're tired, and then I know that those of you who have people at home, your little nurturing mind is moving ahead to what is the house going to look like when you get there? What are you going to have to clean up? What are you going to do for dinner? And I'm just going to ask you to try to stay with me for one more hour. Can you do that? I know we as women, we are the nurturers, and we kind of, our mind gets ahead of us. What do I have to do when I get home, you know? But if you can stay with me for one more hour, um, I'd like, have a little bit more I'd like to share with you. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege to fellowship together and to spend time in your word together, the time to have fun together. And God, we praise you just for all of, all of the texts that we have been singing. Lord, we rejoice in the great work of Jesus Christ, in all that you have done for us. I pray that during this last session, you will just help us as we turn our minds once again to your word. I pray that you would encourage our hearts through it. I pray that you would control my thoughts and my words, and I pray that this would honor and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. So in our first session, we talked about our identity, who we are in Christ. Our second session, we talked about our citizenship. And both of these had an emphasis on what are you living for, really? What, what are your ambitions? What are you striving for? What are you seeking after? Where is your mind set? And in this last session, I'm going to change, change gears just a little bit. But I, I was thinking, what is it that hinders us from living this way? What is it that hinders us from rejoicing in the work of Jesus Christ and who we are in Him? What is it that prevents us, deters us from living as citizens of heaven? I think there are several things. One of them we've kind of touched on, just the, the attractions and the appeal of the world around us. But I think another big one is actually the difficulties of life what we call the trials of life. We, we easily buy into the idea that coming to Jesus Christ in faith, becoming a believer, solves my problems. The Word of God gives me guidance and gives me answers for my problems, but my problems don't go away. If anything, they kind of increase. Because no longer is just faith in there doing her thing, but the spirit is battling against the flesh, right? 
And then there are external things that happen that cause difficulties that we call trials. Trials themselves cause us to struggle. That's why we call them trials, right? We struggle because of the pain and the anxiety that they cause. But often, our struggle with trials goes beyond that to the question of why. God, why have you let this happen to me, to my family, to my loved one? Why, did, why me? And we have these natural questions that we struggle with. So in this last session, I'd like to talk about how should we, how, how can we navigate trials in light of the truths that we have talked about. The texts that we are going to look at give us very clear instructions about trials, truths about trials. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 1. We're going to be here most of the time. We're going to flip just briefly over to James 1. I grew up knowing James 1. 2 through 5, the passage about my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire or complete, lacking nothing. For whatever reason, I grew up memorizing that one and very familiar with that one, and I really didn't know this one in 1 Peter 1. So we're going to hang out here, and we're going to refer back to James 1 a few times because they are parallel in many ways, and then each one adds a couple of distinctive truths that help us form our theology of how to respond to trials. So looking with me in 1 Peter 1, I'd like to read verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Hopefully as I read those three verses, something sounded familiar. There's a lot of similarities there in some of the other verses that we've looked at. Now, picking up in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness or sincerity of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, going back again to verse 6, the first truth about our trials that we see in this passage is that our trials are temporary. We saw the phrase there, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. Let's unpack that little phrase there. The word now, we all know, is what's going on right now, in this current or present time. So it's not talking about the past, and it's not focusing on the future. It's right now. We tend to live in the here and now. We have a hard time often remembering God's faithfulness in the past when we're facing something difficult. And we have a hard time looking beyond it to what's to come in the future according to God's promises. We get stuck in the now. That's human nature. So a trial that is happening now is easily all-consuming. But then when it says, for a little while, that's addressing the longevity of your trial. Now, I don't know about you. But the trials that are going on in my life do not feel like a little while. Would you agree? When you're facing a very difficult trial, it seems like forever. Maybe it's something that you're waiting for and praying for. Marriage, a baby, healing, financial provision, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's a difficult marriage and you might think, I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. Perhaps it's illness. 
And it's discouraging to face pain day after day after day. And it doesn't feel like a little while. Maybe it's a wayward child whom you have prayed for for years and you're not seeing what's happening. Each of you have that trial. And I'd actually like you to identify mentally the biggest trial in your life. And as we go through these truths, think about that trial in light of these truths. Okay, so first of all, it is temporary. Let me ask you a question. What is the longest period of time that any of our trials can possibly last? Say it again. For the rest of my life. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? That's my spiritual gift, encouraging. (laughs) That does not sound like a little while to us. So how can God say that it's a little while? It's all about perspective. God views our earthly life as a little while. In James 1.10, it's talking about the rich man. And James says, as the flower of the field, he will pass away. That little wildflower that lives a few days and then it wilts and the petals fall off and it's gone. 2 Corinthians 4.17 that says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. So this is teaching us God's perspective of the length of our trial. To us, our earthly life is forever because it's all we can see. It helps me to think about an eternal timeline, you know. You remember like a numbers line in math and they put an arrow on one end because it never ends that way and they put an arrow on the other end. Okay, that's a timeline also. In God's time, there's no beginning and no end. And my three score and 10 years that God allots to man on an average, my 70 years is a little tick mark on there. And for me, it feels like forever. But in an eternal perspective, That's just a little while in light of eternity past and eternity present. That should encourage me when I am so weighed down with my trial and my burden. I need to back up and say, okay, God, give me an eternal perspective. You've called me to this for a little while. And you're saying that even if it lasts the rest of this earthly life, in eternity, that is going to seem like a little while. What's the second truth we see here? Look back at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. What are the next three words? If need be. Oops, I got ahead of myself. Turn back over to James 1. Got to keep these in order. Sorry. James 1 verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy. What's the next word? When. Does your Bible say If. It says when. What does that tell me? That tells me that my trials are unavoidable. They're going to happen. And maybe your life has been good so far. Can I just be an encourager once again and say it's coming? (laughs) Into every life, rain falls. Trials come. It says when and not if. You know, sometimes you and I feel like, I didn't sign up for this. Well, you did because you're part of the human race. You're part of the sin-cursed world. And you did when you became a believer because God says that suffering is part of the Christian life. This, This whole idea that suffering is part of life and trials are part of life goes against the message of our Western culture. But if you look in the context of these two passages we're looking at, in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, Peter is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. What had happened to them? They were under such great persecution, they had been dispersed. They suffered. They were suffering Christians. In James chapter 1 verse 1, this is written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Same idea. Christians faced great persecution and were scattered They were suffering. They understood the win of trials. What's the lesson in this for us? Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer 
persecution. You know what? Every one of you sitting here that's a believer that knows the word of God is saying, I know that. I know that. There's lots of verses about trials. But can I suggest that although we know it, we don't really believe it. Why do I say that? Because what do we do when trial comes? What's our response? What? Why me? Why is this happening? Yeah, where, where? <laughs> and that shows what our real mentality is. Somehow we think we're going to be the exception. Somebody said to me after the last session on pornography that this was good because sometimes we know about this, but we just somehow think that our little family is going to be the exception to this struggle. And that is not reality. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. What's he saying? Don't think it's unusual. Don't think that it shouldn't be happening. So I know that isn't the most encouraging thing, but stay with me, okay? The next thing we're going to see back in 1 Peter 1, the phrase that I just tried to read to you ahead of time, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, what are the next three words? If need be. What does that mean? That means that when trials come into my life, when God brings trials into my life, they are necessary. This one doesn't make me real happy. They're not useless. God sends them only when they're needed. And there's an end that he has in mind. There's something that needs to be refined. Something that needs to be changed. Psalm 66.10 says, God has tested us. He has refined us as silver is refined. They are necessary. Next, we see in the same verse, verse 6, after if need be, it says you have been grieved by various trials. What's the truth about trials there? If I am grieved, it tells me that they are difficult. The King James Version there says you are in heaviness. It's the idea that my trials weigh me down. And, you know, I think this is comforting because Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not minimizing your pain. He's not saying that you don't suffer. He's not saying that your trials are not difficult. He's acknowledging that we are grieved and we are weighed down by trials. And to me, that shows, that shows empathy. empathy. God is not saying, no big deal. You know, we like to talk about the verse that talks about God keeping our tears in a bottle. We talk about if, um, Isaiah 53 that talks about he's acquainted with grief. He shares in our sorrow. That phrase goes on to say, you have been grieved by various Trials. Trials are varied. There's an assortment of them. We find the same thing in James 1, 2. The word there, various, is the word variegated. It's the same word that is used in the, in the Old Testament to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. What's the point there? Trials come in all sizes and shapes. My trial is not your trial. And vice versa. And I think the reason that this is important to think about is that we need to be cautious about comparing our trials. It's easy to look at somebody else and say, she's got it made. I wish I had her trial. And I love the truth that God knows exactly what to bring into each of our lives to drive us in desperation to him. And I don't like the trials in my life. And I am tempted to look at yours and think, I'll take that. I'll take that. But in God's sovereignty, he knows what to place in each of our lives. I have the trial of a wayward son. I shared it two years ago 
who went to China as a missionary and while there began to question his own faith. He's an intellectual. And he began to depend on his own reasoning for what is truth. I have another child right now going through a very difficult thing that is affecting her marriage, my grandchildren. And I am heartbroken. But I have to back up and I have to say, God, you know what I need. You know what keeps me dependent on you. You know what keeps me humbled before you. And it had, if I did not have those trials in my life, I think I would have some other problems. I think I would be very proud about how my kids turned out. I think I would be judgmental of others whose kids have struggled. And God designs trials for you. There's something he wants to do in you or there's something he wants to do through you. I love that idea that he has perhaps entrusted you with a specific trial because he knows you will be faithful in it. I may have shared two years ago that my, about my sister. I referred to her in the workshop. Um, she was married for three years, and then her husband was killed in an automobile accident. And at the time he died, she had a 20-month-old and a 2-month-old. And I watched her navigate that great loss. And I found myself asking the question. She's, she's my big sister. She's 5'4", but she's a year older than I am. And I found myself, as I watched her faithfully navigate that trial, asking myself the question, God, could you have entrusted me with that trial? Would, would I have been as faithful to you as she is being? So God gives us varied trials. And then we find that God's trials that he allows in our lives are purposeful. We're going to get more into this in the next section. But the first word of verse 7 is the word that. Verse 6 has told me that my trials are temporary they're necessary. And he goes on to give me a purpose that there's a reason that we are facing this. In Genesis 52, a familiar story when Joseph's brothers are being reconciled with him, that famous verse is recorded where he said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's, it's the decision to trust that God is going to accomplish good through that trial that he's allowing. Let's transition out of the next section and, and talk more specifically about what those purposes in our trials are. You know, it is our natural tendency to want to try to make sense out of what God allows. And somehow we find ourselves asking, okay, God, why, why are you doing this? What, what were you thinking um, what good can come out of this? Why would God allow something so difficult and so painful? And for whatever reason, in our human thinking, it brings us a little bit of comfort if we can wrap our minds around some sort of logic behind it, right? And God, in giving us these purposes, is giving us some general principles that do give us the general idea of why. I may not know the specific nitty-gritty, but I can run to his word and I can cling to these principles that he does spell out for me. We're going to go through these, but may I first say this. God does not owe me an explanation as, as much as I want one. Remember the story of Job? Job has his testing in chapter 1 and he has round 2 in chapter 2. And then from chapter 3 all the way to like, I don't know, 37... Job is, is grappling with what God is doing and he's defending himself and he's trying to understand the why and he's questioning God and he's asking God, God, can I just appear before you like in a courtroom? Can I defend myself and prove to you that I haven't done anything wrong and I didn't deserve this? And then God shows up at the end 
Obviously, God had been hearing it all. And you see that in those last couple of chapters when God refers back to things that have been said. But you get to the end part, and God shows up and starts talking to Job. And God said to Job, okay, Job, let me explain this to you, okay? Is that what God said? Do you realize that when God finally did show up, he offered no explanation? What did he do? He riveted Job's focus to himself. He said, okay, Job, where were you when I created this? Can you understand how this all works out here in creation and in nature? If you're so mighty, why don't you, why don't you go do that? What's he doing? He's not coming down and explaining to Job the why. He's saying, Job, just cling to who I am. I like to think of it as and I, I truth myself with this regularly. I walk my dog and I enjoy nature and creation and sunrise and, and deer. And I think, God, wow, you made all this. You control all this. And it brings me assurance that the God who made all of this and controls all this can handle Faith Taylor's life. And that's what God is saying to Job. Joe, by my power and my might, I did all of this. Just trust in who I am. So God does not owe us an explanation. Um, and God does give us several reasons, but not the nitty-gritty reasons, like I said. Did you ever experience this in parenting? Can you make a decision and you tell your child yes or no about something, and what do they want to know? Why? Why? We allowed our children to make a respectful appeal. It couldn't be whining. It couldn't be argumentative. And there were times when I would sit down with them and say, okay, this and this and this and this. That's the reason we made this decision. And there were other times when I looked at that child and I thought, you are not going to be able to wrap your mind around the why of this. And I simply said to the child, would you trust me in this? Would you trust me and dad that we are making the best decision for you? And sometimes I think that's what God is saying to us. He's not clearly going to reveal the nitty-gritty of the wise. But he wants us to look at who he is and trust him. So let's look at the reasons he does give us. Same passage, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First purpose is that God is testing my faith. The word genuineness there is talking about a test or a proof. It's the same word that's used in James 1.3, knowing that the testing of your faith. God is proving my faith. He's, he's testing it for sincerity, not really so that he can know. I think it's more so that I can know, that I can see it. When you go through a trial, it, whether or not your faith is real is revealed. Let's talk about that a little bit. What is faith? What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say faith is? Faith is the... <laughs> faith is the substance of things hoped for... The evidence of things not seen. So, when my life is going well, hunky-dory, marriage is good, kids are good, job is good, ministry is good, that doesn't require faith. Because I can see that life is good. I can see the blessings of God. I can see the goodness of God. But when my faith is required is when I can't see the good. I can't see what's happening. I can't see what God is doing. So when the trial comes, in that moment, I can't see the good. So I have to practice faith. I have to place my faith in him that he is still good, that he is still in control, that he is sovereign over all of this. Our faith is being tested, and we find ourselves asking questions like, is he really there? Does he really care? Is he really good? Does he really love me? Do I really believe that he's in control? You know, when, when you go through a trial, another piece of this is that 
the angst that it puts in you, the anxiety, the turmoil, the emotion is also a revealer of my faith. The situation going on in our family right now has devastated me. But I've realized something. If I respond to this with turmoil and fret, what is that showing? It's actually showing a lack of faith in my part that God is actually in control of this. Because if I really believe that, I'm able to rest in that. I'm able to rest in the truths that I say I believe. So my response, my sleepless nights, my worrying, my sobbing, I'm not saying there's not a place for grief. When bad things go on in our families, we grieve. But we have to push through that and land in a place of, but I do believe that God is in control of this and that God knows what he's doing. Peter had great confidence in his faith, didn't he? Matthew 26, he says, these other guys might deny you. I never will. He's pretty confident in his faith. Um, Jesus told him that he was going to be made, told the disciples they were going to stumble. And that means to cause to distrust or to desert one whom we ought to trust. In other words, Jesus is saying to him, your faith is going to fail and the truth is, Peter had an unrealistic view of his own faith. And God had to bring this trial into his life and walk him through that to show Peter his faith wasn't what he thought it was. And do you realize how God used that up until then? Peter's the outspoken disciple, you know. He's chopping off the soldier's ear. He's, you know, he's the go-getter. And when that happened... God broke him, and you find him preaching in Acts, and you find him being used of God to bring thousands of people to Christ. But God had to purify that faith. God had to kind of take him down a notch or two and teach him true dependence on himself. So God is proving my faith. He is also making my life productive. Flip back to James 1. 2 through 4, verses that you're probably familiar with. Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's making my life productive by developing endurance in me. The Greek word for endurance there, or patience, means to stay under and it's the idea that when the trial comes, what is our natural response? What is your first prayer when something bad starts to happen? God, take it away. God, fix this. And sometimes God does. That's not a wrong prayer to pray. Jesus prayed that at Gethsemane. Paul prayed that with his thorn in the flesh three times. It's okay to pray that, but, and sometimes God chooses to deliver and strengthens your faith. And sometimes God says, no, I'm going to give you the grace to go through that, right? And when that happens, when God says no, we are to hupamino, stay under. I want to squirm my way out from under it. I want it to go away. I want to manipulate people and circumstances to fix it because I don't like being there. And he's saying, I am producing endurance in you. And you just need to stay right where you are. And I'm going to give you the grace to bear the weight of that trial. He's developing endurance in me as part of what he's producing. He is also maturing me and making me complete. Perfect and complete. The idea of being brought to its end. Being brought uh, to completion. Complete in all its parts with nothing lacking. God looks at you and me and he sees, hmm, I think I want to grow her in this. And I think this trial will help that happen. And he's bringing us to maturity. 
So God's purposes are testing my faith, making my life productive. And then there's another one that I think spans the others and is in verse 7 of 1 Peter 1. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? The genuineness of my faith, he's, he's testing it, he's purifying it. And what is the end result? Just like we talked about last night. It's to his praise and his glory and his honor. God is causing you and me through our trials to bring him praise, honor, and glory. 1 Peter 4.12 is a verse I mentioned a minute ago about think it not strange about the fiery trials. That verse ends with that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Verse 16 if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that matter. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy with the glory which shall be revealed in us through the trial. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. May the God of all grace, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever. God is using your trials to bring himself glory. As he's shaping you, as he's molding you. And that is the overarching purpose. Again, just like we talked about last night in my identity. You know, in, in the trials that I'm going through in, in my family, that helps me a lot. It helps me to get my focus off of, of the struggles of the other person. I still continue to pray for them. I still continue to uphold them. But God has helped me turn my focus to, okay, God... What do you want out of me in this? How can I glorify you in my response? I remember reading a book by Elise Fitzpatrick where she talk, she's talking about glorifying God and she's talking about trials and it's a parenting book. And I think she says in there something like, um, in our minds, the best way to glorify God as a Christian family is to have all of my children turn out to be godly and serving the Lord. You know, they're all lined up and quacking like good little ducks. And she says, what if, what if God could receive more glory out of your life through having you have a struggling child? And I'm like, oh, I don't want that. I don't like that. But think through it with me. When my children are doing well, or whatever scenario you're in, it's easy for me to talk well of God. It's easy for me to praise Him and to rejoice Him. And it's natural and it's expected if I'm a believer. But when things are very difficult and things are very painful, when I then praise God, when I then demonstrate trust in Him, that has a much greater impact. That has a much greater opportunity to actually bring Him glory. Because it's not natural. We've talked about the truths about trials, the purposes of trials. Now, in closing, let's talk about a godly response to trials. First of all, expect them. We talked about that earlier, that we shouldn't be surprised, that no one is exempt. 1 Peter 4.1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. What does that mean? He suffered in his human body, and I need to arm myself. I need to be ready to do the same thing. Our mentality should be to expect suffering in this life. Secondly, submit, or we could use the word surrender to them. I mentioned Paul and Jesus both asking for relief. Paul for relief from whatever his thorn was. Jesus asking for the cup to be passed from him. But when God said no, both of them surrendered and submitted. Not my will, but yours be done. Therefore, will I gladly rejoice that the power of God may rest upon me. 
The word let in James 1.4, let patience have its perfect work, is the idea of hold yourself to it. Allow it to happen. Don't resist it and fight it. Closely related to that idea of submitting or <coughs> surrendering is the idea of staying under that we talked about. Allowing yourself to be under that weight even when you desperately want to be out from under it. Next, be confident that God is growing you. When James 1 tells us to count it all joy, he goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, produces patience. You can be confident that God is at work. Next, ask God for wisdom. Sometimes we, in James 1, we separate this from the previous paragraph Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And if you take that in the context of the passage, it's talking about we're going through difficult trials. And he's telling us to endure and to be confident that God is forming his will, his character in us. And then it says, if you lack wisdom, you can ask God. What am I asking God for wisdom in in regard to my trial? I might be asking him to help me understand it, and he may or may not choose to do that. But I think bigger than that, I am asking him for wisdom in understanding what are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to grow me? How can I glorify you through this? God, show me. Show me what to do. Show me how to act. Show me how to reflect you through this. And God is saying, I want to freely give you wisdom in your trials. He says he gives it without reproach. God is not sitting in heaven saying, you again. We've already talked today. There's no rebuke. He's welcoming you to come to ask him for wisdom. I think a good prayer of commitment is something along the lines of, Lord, I'm humbling myself before you. I want wisdom and nothing's off limits. Whatever you want to teach me, I want to learn. By faith, I ask you to do a work in me, and I will choose to stay under. I will not kick against this. I will not wiggle and squirm and wish it away. But I will accept your hand, the pressure of your hand in my life. Then a response is to rejoice. James 1, 2, count it all joy. It's not a yippee happiness that this is happening. Because in difficult trials, that's very impossible. But it's the idea of the word count there is to press your mind down into something. So it's the idea of weigh this trial, measure it, calculate it, put it in perspective. I put it in perspective and I can rejoice in it when I have this view of God is at work in me. God wants to do something in me and through me through this. I think a good way to illustrate this is labor. How many of you are like, woohoo, can't wait for labor? What made you joyful about labor? It was what you were getting out of it, right? My younger daughter just had her first baby a few months ago, and we were talking about it. And I said, honey, it's going to hurt. She wanted to go all natural. There's my encouragement again, right? And I was like, it is going to be really hard, honey, but it's not like having the flu. It's not like having cramps. You're getting something awesome out of this. And she was magnificent. She was a trooper. And that, the same thing applies here. How do I rejoice? I rejoice because, God, this stinks right now. But I believe what your word says, that you are, you're refining silver out of this. You, you're doing something. And as Job says, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And I can rejoice in that process. And sometimes along the way of this trial, you're actually able to identify, wow, God's really growing me in this area through this. I'm realizing I'm actually learning how to do this. I'm learning how to rest in him. I'm learning how to keep my focus on his promises and not on my circumstances. 
And you actually begin to identify some of those things he's teaching you. And you can rejoice in that. Lastly, this is going to sound unusual. Oh, where did it go? Was there a seventh one up there? It won't go backwards. Can you make it go backwards? Oh, well, every time I do that, I go way backwards. Oh, pooey. Okay. <laughs> do you have another one on your handout? Oh, good. Okay. This is keep your trials in parentheses. Keep your trials in parentheses. Now, go with me back to 1 Peter 1. You're probably saying, what in the world is she talking about? In chapter 1 of 1 Peter 1, I started reading to you in verse 3. And I paused after verse 5 to help you think about the fact that the things we... What? How did you do that, Sam? You typed it in for me? They're so nice. If we look at 1 Peter 1 and we read this passage, the passage is not about trials. The passage is about our inheritance in Christ. Look again at verse 3. This is going to sound a lot like last night. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, that idea of being sealed that we talked about last night, by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. That's what the passage is about. This is who you are. This is what Christ has done. This is calls for great rejoicing. And then he says, even though right now for a little while, you have these trials that God is using to purify your faith, to bring him praise, honor, and glory. So keeping your trial in parentheses is exactly what this passage does. It's like a parenthetical statement. Rejoice in everything that God has done for you, even though right now life stinks. Even though right now you're going through something really hard. That's not the, that's not the major focus of the passage. So it gives me perspective. I'm going to keep the focus of my life being this great inheritance that Jesus Christ has given me. The magnificence of what he's done for me, parenthesis, even though right now I'm going through something hard. What happens to you and me naturally is the trial becomes the big thing and what Jesus has done becomes the, the parenthetical statement. Does that make sense to you? I get excited about that. Can you tell? I just love that truth right there. And we can greatly rejoice in everything that verses 3 through 5 tell us. Only by considering why you're here and what life is really about and where you're going will you be able to consider your trials joy and will you be able to allow Christ, God, to accomplish in you what he wants to through them. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, those trials, those hardships, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Will you with me Choose to focus on the truths about trials, the purposes, what God says he's trying to accomplish. Will you respond in the way that his word is teaching us to? And will you commit to staying under it? It won't last forever. God is at work in you and through you. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads just for a minute. I like to try to end 
ladies' retreats with a chance for ladies to just respond in the quietness of your own seat and your own heart to any, any little nugget of truth that God has impressed you with this weekend. Maybe, maybe the idea of who we are in Christ was something you really needed. And you just want to thank God and praise God for that. Maybe you realize that, that you understand those things, but that your response to it has been very self-focused rather than, God, I want to bring you praise and glory because of what you've done in my life. Maybe today God prompted your heart about something about being a citizen of heaven, and you realized, you know what? I spend a whole lot of time focused on the here and the now and what's going on around me. And yes, I have responsibilities. I have things I have to take care of that are mundane. But God, help me to live as a citizen of heaven. Help me to know how to do that. Help me to reflect you to the world around me as you dwell within me. Maybe God has used something from a workshop. Or maybe in this last session, God has spoken to your heart about trials. And you realize, you know what? I don't, I don't have a biblical theology about trials. And I buck them and I resist them and I squiggle and squirm. And Lord, do what you want to do in me, whatever it takes. Just in the quietness of your own seat, would you just respond to God? God, here's what you've impressed me with. Help me to understand it. Help me to live it. Do your work in my life. Thank you, Father, for your precious, precious word the truths of it, the doctrine that gives us a foundation for life, the practical applications that you provide. We rejoice in all that you've done in our lives. We rejoice in the inheritance that is laid up for us. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as personal Savior, help them to understand what it means to be alienated from you and how you've made it possible for us to be brought near to you. In your name we pray, amen.